Amen. Well, <laughs> what a blessing that uh, time of worship was this morning uh, for our online audience uh, and those maybe that are listening to this at some point in the future. We're so glad that you found us and uh, that you're here with us now as we turn to God's Word. And as we do so, we're continuing a series that we've been in for several weeks now. It's titled Living and Loving. And we are looking at the New Testament letters of Paul, starting in Romans um, and working our way through our banding together reading plan. If you're engaged in that, um, each week we're, we're looking at one of the books that we've just read. And uh, we've been talking about how to live with each other and how to love each other, both within the church and outside of the church, and how to, to live at peace and live out Jesus's command. When he instituted the new covenant, he brought a new command with it, and that new command was love one another. And he added to that command this qualifier, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And so we've been looking at living and loving, and living and loving together. And last week, Pastor Sandy did a marvelous job. It was such a joy to, to watch her and the whole team shine. And my absence is so good as a pastor when you can leave and actually leave and not get a bunch of text messages or phone calls. And they got thrown a couple of curveballs and stepped up to the plate masterfully. And my family and I had a wonderful vacation, even got to uh, go to another church and just be a fly on the wall. And uh, that was such a gift. And, and Pastor Sandy did such a good job talking about living and loving when it's hard, living and loving when you're going through the valley, and also living and loving those who are going through the valley. And it was such a powerful message. And I was so blessed as I read the connection cards, and I thought there were connection cards representing five different generations talking about how much they loved the message, how much they loved the music, how much they loved worshiping together as a family. And I thought, that's a unique gift, a unique strength that, that Linwood has, that we are a very multi-generational church. Most churches lean in one generation or another, or they lean young or they lean older. And when we look, and if you could stand in this spot and look out over this congregation, you see people from five different generations. And we celebrate that we have leaders in our ministry, people that are leading in ministry in five different generations. And living and loving together. So uh, that was a huge celebration for our staff as we talked about that. And today, we're going to turn our focus to godly living. Godly living will be in 1 Timothy, uh, which is a letter that Paul wrote to a, a friend of his, a companion of his, a fellow pastor of his, a protege of his, that, um, that he had sent to Ephesus to kind of right the ship. There were some things getting a little wonky in Ephesus, and Paul sends Timothy to go and, and fix it, and he sends this letter as a follow-up with some instructions and with some authority um, for those that might question Timothy's authority. And so we'll be talking about godly living because godly living is one of the main themes in 1 Timothy. And if you read the book of 1 Timothy, you'll see godliness or godly living called out at least eight different times. And so we're going to look at two of those times, which happen to be in successive verses, and we're going to seek to answer three questions today. What is godliness? Why does it matter? And how do we do it? Sound good? 
All right, I saw a few heads nod, so I'm going to run with it. If you're in the sanctuary, we're in uh, page 1848 in the Pew Bibles. If you're joining us online, I don't know what page it is in your Bible, but I hope you have one open on your lap. If not, it's on the screens behind me. And um, I'm, I'm also excited because I noticed when I watched the service last week that, that it ended early. How many of you noticed that church ended a little early last week? I think they left about 10 minutes on the table. I'm going to take them, and I might need a few more because when the pastor misses a week, you get some extra credit, right? This is the bonus round for you. So uh, I'll, try to, I'll try to finish up by one. I think we can make it. If you have lunch plans, you might want to cancel them. Um, but we're going to look at a couple of verses in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. And if you want to follow along with me, we'll look at these together, and then we will kind of pick them apart. Verse 7, Paul says, "...have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come." So, if, if you think about verse 7, there's a couple of things happening there. In the first half, it says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. It's as if Paul is saying, let's move beyond the folk theology, let's move beyond the quasi-biblical wisdom, and let's have nothing to do with that. Let's focus on God's Word, what it says, how we apply it to our lives. And you might say, well, I don't follow any godless myths, Pastor Mark, and I'm not a big fan of any old wives' tales. But I can tell you as, as a pastor who's been doing this full-time for, for 10, 12 years that this is still common today. We maybe don't call it godless myths and old wives' tales, but there is this quasi-Christian wisdom that sort of gets smuggled into a religious rapper or a Christian rapper, and uh, not that kind of Christian rapper, not, you know, propaganda or something like that. I'm talking about a rapping that makes it look Christian. And there were four of these phrases that came to mind. You may have some others, um, but, but how about this one? God will never give you more than you can handle. Anybody ever heard that one? Anybody willing to admit that they've said that one? I've said that one. <laughs> and somebody called me on it and said, Pastor Mark, have you read 2 Corinthians chapter 1? Paul says very clearly, we had way more than we could handle, so much so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we felt the sentence of death was upon us, but all this happened, that we would rely not on ourselves, but on God. He has delivered us, and He will deliver us. Amen to that. Praise the Lord for that. That is good news. And so God does give us more than we can handle, but He works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That is in the Bible. That is Romans eight twenty eight, And we can trust Him. When we are overwhelmed, He is not overwhelmed. He will never give us more than He can handle, but He may allow circumstances to come into our lives that bring us to a greater awareness of our need for Him. And that is a blessing, often in disguise, but a blessing. There's another one that says, God helps those who help themselves. Anybody heard that one? You can read the whole Bible. You will never find that in the pages of Scripture. In fact, most people have, have kind of landed on the idea that this was a Greek uh, idea back when it was the gods help those who help themselves. And it was meant to praise initiative, which was a high value in the ancient world, that if you work hard and you go after it, the gods will bless you. They don't bless lazy people who don't help themselves. Scripture says something different. Scripture says that God's grace and favor are available to everyone, that He loves everyone, that God loves the whole world, every single person. And 
it promises additional help to those who help others. So God blesses those who bless others. God wants each and every one of us to be a conduit for His blessing to come into the lives of others. So, so not so much a self-help gospel, but a true gospel that says when we turn our lives over to God and allow Him to work in our lives and through our lives, He blesses us. He gives us favor. He gives us provision. He gives us what we need to serve those around us. There's another one that's pretty close. And you might even say, Pastor Mark, those words do occur in Scripture. Money is the root of all evil. Have you heard that one? And you could say, well, it's, in, it's actually in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Mark. But it says it's the love of money that is the root of all evil, not money itself. You see, money in and of itself is neutral. What money does is it makes you more of what you already are. It's one of those accelerators. It's a catalyst. You remember catalysts in seventh grade chemistry? And you added a little bit of heat and things blew up. Or you add a little bit of this and things blew up. Well, money is one of those things. If you are selfish and miserable and you get a lot of money, you're going to be selfish and miserable. If you are generous and kind and sacrificial and you get a lot of money, you're going to be more generous and more kind and more sacrificial. It is not evil in and of itself. It's the love of money. It's the agape of money. And we usually talk about agape like God's agape for us, and He tells us to agape one another, to have self-sacrificing surrender for one another. But when you add a self-sacrificing surrender to money, that is the root of all evil. That makes money preeminent. That makes money the thing that we sacrifice ourselves for, not God Himself. And it becomes an idol in our lives, and that is the root of all evil. A last one, and then I'll quit, I promise. How many of you have heard cleanliness is next to godliness. More likely from your mom than your dad or your grandma than your, than your dad. But you can read the whole Bible and you'll never find the phrase cleanliness is next to godliness. It's not next to godliness in these words, in these pages of Scripture. In fact, it is traced to the 17th century when plagues were ravaging Europe, and it was sort of a church-sponsored propaganda to try to save lives. It was like a hand-washing campaign, proving that nothing is new under the sun, and that here we are four centuries later, and people have been telling each other that cleanliness is next to godliness, as if it was in Scripture, but it's not. It's not in Scripture. It does bring us back to the theme of godliness, though, doesn't it? And as I mentioned before, godliness is a central theme in this letter, as if Paul was saying what I really want the church at Ephesus to understand is godliness. It's godly living, making decisions to pursue godliness. He even goes so far as to say in verse 8, godliness has value for all things. And there's no asterisk on my version that doesn't say that all with a little, you know, most or many things. It says all things. Godliness has value for all things. And if that wasn't a big enough claim, here's another. Both in the present life and the life to come. Both in the here and now and the there and then. Paul is saying godliness is good. Like godliness is for you. Godliness has value. And if you're pursuing a life of godliness, it's good for you. Not just here and now. But there and then, if you do what it says, if you pursue godliness in your life, it is good for you, and it has value for you. And so given those claims, I think it might be worth looking into. I think it might be worth looking into godliness and saying, what is it? Why does it matter? And how do we do it? So let's start with the first question. What is godliness? Godliness could be described as godly living. That's why the title of the sermon is Godly Living. It has to do with piety or devotion or reverence. Those are words that are sometimes translated or added to this idea of godliness. It means uh, it's kind of a word picture to venerate or to pay homage to God 
and his ways. That's what godliness is. It's, it's when you pursue godly living. It's, it's what I, when I read all the different translations and all the different uh, definitions, I, I settled on this definition. I believe godliness is our appropriate response to the things of God. All of them. All of them. That godliness is our appropriate response. Godly living is our appropriate response. Pursuing godly living is our response to the things of God, to His grace, to His salvation, to uh, His, His Word, to the Holy Spirit in our lives, to fellowship, to, to His charge to us in the pages of Scripture. Godliness and godly living is our appropriate response to the things of God. Now, as we try to answer that question, what is it, you might want to look at the eight times that it's mentioned in First Timothy or the other eight times in the New Testament. You could do a word search or you could get out a study Bible. I've listed the scriptures that are just in the book of First Timothy. And so if you want a little extra credit yourself, you could go home and you could read these verses. You could read the passages around them. You could get a, a broader, more detailed picture of what godliness is if you looked at these eight verses. We'll leave them on the screen long enough if you want to write them down or take a picture with your cell phone, because you'll hear things about quiet, peaceful living. That's an element of godliness. Or being godly and dignified in the way that we live our lives, having a sense of dignity about us. You might see some things about appropriate dress, not being flashy or seductive, especially in church. Apparently, that was an issue, that modesty is an element of godliness. You'll hear it called a great mystery. You'll see that godliness is a great gain, especially with some contentment thrown in. And ultimately, you'll get the picture, especially in in chapter 6, that godliness is worth pursuing. It's worth pursuing passionately. It's worth pursuing publicly and privately. It's worth pursuing individually and corporately. And so as we think about what godliness is, in a nutshell, godliness is holiness. And if you're here at Linwood this morning, you are sitting smack dab in the middle of a holiness movement church. The Wesleyan church is what we call one of the holiness movements. There's a handful of them, and, and, and they emphasize holiness, that, that part of the whole salvation plan and part of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives, which Jesus talks about in chapters 14, 15, and 16 of John, if you want to read it, is that, that we would learn how to be holy, that we would become holy. That, that who we are when we're saved doesn't look like who we are when we breathe our last. That there's a progression that we become holier, that we become more like Jesus. God's vision for the church is a bunch of Jesuses running around, a bunch of people living and acting as Jesus would if he were them. That's the best definition of discipleship I've ever heard from Dallas Willard, that, that discipleship is learning to live my life as Jesus would if he were me. If Jesus was the pastor of Linwood Wesleyan Church, what would he do and how would he do it? If Jesus was a teacher, if Jesus was a retired nurse, if Jesus was a business administrator, if Jesus was a business owner, what would he do and how would he do it? How would he interact with people? How would he interact with your spouse and your kids and your neighbors and your coworkers? That's discipleship. That's becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's learning to live your life as he would. And there's a progression there. And if you're anything like me, it's not like, well, godliness was that thing I worked on that one summer and then I've been godly ever since. I wish I could tell you that that's the way it works. It hasn't been the case for me. Maybe it is for you or somebody you know. But for me, godliness looks more like, hey, Mark, and it pokes a bruise. And it says, does that, does that line up with God's vision for your life? No. What are you going to do about it? Okay, I'll look at the Word. Okay, it says to do this and this and this. Okay, help me, Lord. 
Help me, friends. Help me, church. Help me, God. And I pursue godliness in that area, and then I get that area kind of shored up, and then there's another area over here. It's like what I've called like a spiritual game of whack-a-mole. You know, you get one bonk down, and another one pops up, and then you go chose. And that's what godliness looks like for me, and I think it might look like that for you if you're in the godliness game. If you're not in the godliness game, you might have just let that game run out and said, I don't want to play it anymore. And I think God is saying, no, there's a vision for your life, and it's to be just like Jesus. And so godliness becomes obedience to the New Testament morality that we see in the pages of Scripture, that we see in the letters of Paul, that we see in the red letters of the Gospels, as Jesus is saying the do's and the don'ts, and and we take those seriously, and we seek to bring those into our lives. And this is a really important point. If you drifted off, I want to bring you back right now, because when I wrote these words down, I thought, ooh, that's... That's good. You see, we don't obey. We don't seek holiness. We don't seek godliness and godly living because God will get us if we don't. We don't seek godliness and we don't seek to obey God because he'll get us if we don't, like he's a ticked off landlord and if we screw up one more time, we're out of here. No, we obey God because he already has us, because he's Lord and Savior, and those two go hand in hand. And we say, you are my Lord. My will is now your will. And we turn our will completely over to him. And we say, Lord, it's all your will. And here's the thing. You know, servants do what their Lord says to do. That's the relationship. And if God says to do it through his word, then we say yes and amen. And sometimes we say, help me figure it out. Send me somebody who's further down the line that can help me in this area. If he's Lord, we do what our Lord tells us to do. And if we don't, he's not Lord. I hate to break it to you. That's why it matters so much. And that leads us into our second point. What godliness is, it's holiness, it's holy living. Why it matters so much is why it has value in this life and the life to come. It has value for you here and now, and it has value for others here and now. And and to stress why godliness matters so much, I want to back up a few verses to the end of chapter 3. So you probably don't even need to turn the page. Uh, But you can look at the last few verses of chapter 3. I want to read verses 14 through 16 to you, and we'll see very clearly why godliness matters so much. Here's what he says in verses 14 through 16. He's writing to Timothy, and he's wrapping up the first section of the letter, and he says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that, always circle the so that, in your Bible, you can write in your Bible, I promise, so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. That's godliness, how we ought to to conduct themselves in God's household. That's the church, which is the church of the living God. And listen to this next phrase. This is so big. The church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Holy cow. Underline that. Circle that. Put a star next to that. We'll come back to it in just a second, because here's where he starts to talk about godliness. He says, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. Does he have your attention? He's about to tell you the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. There's a colon, because it's going to tell us. Here's Here's the mystery from which true godliness springs. He, he's talking about Jesus, appeared in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. That, my friends, is the gospel. That is the mystery from which true godliness springs. It's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not the only place that Paul refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ as a mystery. 
as an indescribable gift. He does it in Romans, he does it in 1 Corinthians, he does it in Ephesians and Colossians. And then John picks up the trait in Revelation and refers to the gospel, the grand scheme of God's plan for the world as a great mystery. It's a great mystery. Like It doesn't make a lot of sense in our human terms, but it makes perfect sense in God's divine plan. So he says this mystery from which true godliness springs is the gospel. He, Jesus, appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. That's the gospel. That is, I have it in my notes, that is the incarnation, the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, right there in those five phrases. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And he's basically saying all true godliness, the pursuit of godliness, the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of holy living, all of true godliness is rooted in the gospel. And the gospel says that I am more sinful than I can possibly imagine and that the results of my sin are worse than I can possibly imagine, but that God's grace and his unconditional love for me is better than I can possibly imagine. And Jesus' death on the cross for me accomplished more than I can possibly imagine. That's why it's a great mystery. That's why we need it so much. It's because we're worse, and our future apart from Christ is worse than we can possibly imagine. But God's grace and his unconditional love has accomplished more for us than we could possibly deserve. It's better than we can possibly imagine. And when we tie that back to the phrase he says in verse 15, that the church, that Linwood Wesleyan Church, the capital C church around the world, all the people gathering in Jesus' name today are part of the church of Christ in verse 15, we are God's household. We are the church of the living God. We are the pillar and foundation of the truth. That is a very big statement. He's saying the church. The church is the pillar. That's the thing that everybody can see, and it kind of calls to mind these old pagan kings that would build a huge tower or a huge obelisk in the middle of their city, and they would make people bow down to it like they do in Daniel when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't do it, and Daniel wouldn't do it. They would do that, and he's saying, you know what? The church is that for me. The church is the foundation of the truth. The love that you have for each other is the visible representation of the truth of the gospel. This is big stuff. This is really good news. And that's why it matters so much. And two weeks ago, I quoted Charles Spurgeon, and I said that that this is why this matters so much. The Bible is not being read by the world out there. The world out there doesn't read the Bible. They read Christians. They don't wake up 15 minutes early in the morning and read their Bible and ask God to show them how that applies to their lives. They just look at us. They look at you. They look at me. And sadly, a lot of people in the church aren't getting up early and asking God to reveal His will for them through the words of Scripture. And so the Bible is, is not being read by the world out there. We are. That's why godliness matters so much. That's why pursuing holy living has never mattered more. It impacts our witness. It impacts our evangelism. It impacts our discipleship out there, and it impacts our fellowship and our relationships in here. Are we really seeking to be discipled by God and by His Word? And so practically speaking, godliness is good for you. Godliness is really good for you. Like if you pursue godliness, it will go well with you in the words of Scripture both now and in the future, both in this life and the life to come. It's good, but it's not just good for you. 
It's good for the people around you too. Godliness is good for those around you. And if it's not, you're not doing it right. If your godliness hurts other people, if your theology causes you to harm other people or to malign other people or to relegate other people to a second-class standard, then that's not godliness. That's not godliness rooted in the gospel, which is what Paul is talking about. If your godliness hurts people or isn't good for people, then you're doing it wrong. And we can look to Jesus as our example. Yes, he spoke some hard truths. He was the marriage of grace and truth. John tells us that he came into the world full of grace and truth, full to the brim of grace and full to the brim of truth. Now, myself and 99.99% of the people that I've met tilt on one side or the other of the whole grace and truth. They're all, they're just all about the truth. I'm going to speak the truth. I forget about the love part, but I'm going to speak the truth. And I'm going to let people know where they're wrong, and I'm going to take out billboards, and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get the truth out there. There's some people that lean towards the truth. And then there are those that lean towards the love, and they will not say a hard thing to anyone to save their life, literally. Because they're all about the grace. They're all about the love. Jesus shows us what it looks like to be full to the brim of grace and full to the brim of truth and how to marry those two together perfectly. And that's why godliness matters so much because we have to pursue it. Because if I don't pursue it, I'm not going to default in that direction. Right? I'm not going to default towards godliness. The fall of man and and original sin kind of says, I'm going to default in the other direction. And so our bottom line today is that godly living is good for you and it's good for everyone around you. Godliness, godly living is good for you. It benefits you in this life and the life to come and it benefits everyone around you. And if your godliness isn't, then you need to adjust your godliness. You need to adjust your pursuit of holiness. All right, so we've talked about what it is. We've talked about why it matters. We're halfway there, so we should land this plane by noon. Just joking. Got a few more minutes. How do we do it? How do we do godliness? How do we succeed in godly living? How do we discover what God's vision for your life is. I believe that's what godliness is. I believe it, God's vision for your life is that you would be just like Jesus. And so if there are parts of who you are that are not just like Jesus yet, then that means we have some room to grow in our godliness. And I believe God wants this vision for you. He loves you as you are right now, okay? That's the good news of the gospel. But he loves you enough not to leave you there, and he loves the people around you enough not to leave you there. And so he has a vision for your life, and he wants you to discover what that vision looks like. And I believe, and this is going to come as no surprise to those of you who have been around here for a while, this is our instruction manual. This is how we grow in godliness. This is how we discover what his will for us is and how we discover what his vision for our lives is. This is our instruction manual. In fact, I've seen, maybe you've seen the quote that the Bible is an acronym, basic instructions before leaving earth. Not just for you, but for those around you. This becomes our instruction manual that the New Testament in particular gives us great insight into what Jesus would do. This will come in no surprise. I talk about this every couple of months. What would Jesus do was a fantastic question to be asking. It was a fantastic campaign. If anything, it became marginalized because it became so popular. I'd love to see it make a massive resurgence and stick around this time. That we would all be asking, what would Jesus do in every situation in our lives? And we'd be spending enough time in his word that we have a pretty good idea what Jesus would do. 
And we're spending enough time in prayer that we would be inviting the Holy Spirit to help us do what Jesus would do. And we're spending enough time in fellowship and in discipleship that we would be actually learning how and being held accountable by people that love us and have our best interest in mind so that we would do what Jesus would do, that we would train ourselves to be godly. That comes from verse 7 where he says, have nothing to do with those old wives' tales and those godless myths, but train yourself to be godly. And there was an insight there. I've shared about, you know, putting 250 pounds over my head on, you know, there's going to be some training involved. And I was reminded, you know, spending time in the Word and training yourself in that. And sometimes it doesn't come easy. And sometimes you read it and you're like, what was that? What is he talking about? What is going on? And that can happen when you read Scripture. But you train yourself. And maybe some of you heard me talking about soap and you heard me talking about Scripture, observation, application, prayer, and how that's outlined right here in page three of these journals, which over 150 of these journals have gone out into Linwood now. Some people are on their third or fourth journal. Um, but it tells you how to do this. And I thought, you know, maybe soap is, is hard for somebody getting right out of the gate. Maybe you start just by reading the chapter. And that's how you train yourself in godliness for a while. You say, I'm just going to commit to read the chapter. And then, after a couple months of that, that becomes, you know, more common in your life. You say, okay, what about the S, Lord? You and me, we're going to do the S. I'm going to get my journal out. I'm going to read my chapter. I'm going to write down one verse. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to take the time to write it down in my own hand. And I guarantee you, you will think thoughts as you write it out that you did not think as you read it. That's just the way it works. And you do that for a couple of months, and now you're doing the S, and now you say, okay, I'm ready to graduate to so, S-O. I'm going to write just one or two observations. While I'm writing it out and I'm thinking those thoughts that I didn't think while I was reading it, I'm going to jot one or two of them down and bullet point one or two things, observations that I see in that text. You do that for a couple of months, you might even have an idea of how that applies to your life and how your day might be different if you took this truth and how this relationship might benefit from doing that. Now you're applying it to, now we're really on our way to godliness. And I don't think it'll be very long before you're writing out a little prayer. God, help me to do this. Help me to do this today. Help me to apply what I observed from your word. And so there's the soap progression, the scripture observation prayer. And if you're doing that, I got news. I'm excited about this. There's a new version of these journals that's coming out, and they're adding an S to the word soap. You know what it stands for? Share it. Share it. You've just encountered God's Word. You've just written out a scripture. You've written out some observations. You've applied it to your life. You've prayed a prayer. Now you can share that with somebody else. You can share it with somebody one-on-one. You can share it in your discipleship group. You can share it on your Facebook page or your Instagram. Make a little colorful slide that has the text and put it out there for the world to see. There's all kinds of ways that you can share it. But that would be training in godliness. And now you're starting to have conversations and you're putting yourself out there and you're inviting some accountability, which is a good thing. So here's your shortcut. Read God's Word, especially the New Testament, and do what it says. (laughs) Read God's Word and do what it says. That's pursuing godliness. That's pursuing godliness. And as you do that, you might find there's some things I need to repent of. Like, I got to quit saying that word. I got to quit looking over there. I got to quit doing that. I got to quit treating that person that way. And you turn 180 degrees. This is called repentance, and you move in the other direction. And you might need to say a prayer to get a little help with that. Or you might need to invite some accountability into your life. And ask some people, to, would you pray with me about this? I don't want to do this anymore. Or I really want to start doing this. Would you pray with me? Or maybe you even need a recovery ministry. There's all kinds of good Christian recovery ministries right here in Sioux Falls. If you need help with that, let me know. I'll connect you. 
Because the bottom line is godly living, it's good for you. And it's good for everyone around you. And that's why it matters so much. And that's why God wants it to be a part of our lives. So I'm actually going to finish half an hour early. Wrap it up right now. But I encourage you as we close, as we, as we respond in singing, as we wrap up this service, don't just close your Bible and say, good sermon, Pastor Mark. Wow, you should go on vacation more often. That was really, no. Well, yeah, I should go on vacation. I'll make sure you know who the LBA members are. We can work out something every other week, whatever. But I really want you to seek to say, God, where, where does godliness need to be the forefront of my life? Where do I need to grow in holiness? Where do I need to grow? Where is my godliness harmful to the people around me? Where is it costing somebody? Where is it not a benefit to them? And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace that we've been singing about this morning. Thank you for your word, the primary vehicle for us to grow in godliness. Thank you, Lord for every person in this room, every person watching online, every person listening to this at some point in the future. And Lord, I think of the whole continuum. There are people listening to this that have been pursuing godliness for a long time. And they've gotten really good at it. And most of us would look at them and say, wow, I wish I could be that godly. Lord, I pray for those people right now, and I pray that you would give them a heart that burns to share what they have learned from your word with others, that burns to, to pour into others. They probably don't think that they're worthy, but I pray that your spirit would nudge them right now and help them to find somebody that they could start pouring into. You've never asked us to fill someone else's cup. You've only asked us to empty ours and to come back to you and refill it and go empty it again. I pray for those that are somewhere on the journey but maybe your spirit has brought a few things to mind. And I pray that right now they wouldn't just shrug their shoulders at that, but that they would lean into that. That they would seek to become more like you in that area of their life. And maybe there's multiple areas. But I pray that they would trust you. And Lord, I think of people that maybe have heard the gospel for the first time. Heard that there's a God that loves them so much that he would die for them. He came and lived a perfect, sinless life in order to die a gruesome and horrifying death on the cross in our place. But he says that each and every one of us, despite our failures, despite our sin, despite our willful transgressions against you and against others, that you say we're worth dying for. That you say there's a place in your family for us. God, I pray for them to turn to you. I pray for them to reach out to you. I pray for them to acknowledge their sin and ask you to forgive it and to begin to pursue a life of godliness here and now from this day forward. Wherever we are, Lord, I pray that your spirit will move us right now and that we will, each and every one of us, turn our eyes upon you and fix them on you as the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him despised the cross, scorning its shame is now seated at the right hand of the Father. May we join him there as we pursue a life of godliness. In Jesus' name we pray.